Tonight we pick up where we left off just after the 10th plague. And the Israelites are just now leaving Egypt in Exodus 12, 37. And we're covering from verse 37 of chapter 12 to verse 16 of chapter 13, which I, I just read. But instead of working through this passage from beginning to end, I've arranged our study tonight under three headings. The first is the gospel symbolism. The second is the gospel invitation. And the third is the gospel memorials. So let's look at each in turn, beginning first with the gospel symbolism. There is quite obviously rich gospel symbolism in the first Passover, in the Exodus itself, and in the institution of an annual Passover at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This whole section of scripture is just rich with gospel symbolism. As we saw last week, there is hard to miss gospel symbolism in the first Passover, as every household in the land, Jews and Gentiles alike, must either experience death at the hands of a holy God, or shelter themselves behind the blood of a lamb. Of course, this lamb prefigures Jesus, who John the Baptist calls the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. I wanted to point out another layer of detail in this relationship between the first Passover lamb and Jesus, the last Passover lamb. Notice in Exodus 12, 41, that it says, at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. I am no Hebrew scholar. I can't read even one word of Hebrew. But theologically, it seems to me that the King James Version has to be a better translation than the ESV on this uh, particular, in this particular uh, section, specifically verse 40. Because verse 40 in the ESV says, The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. So, if that is the case, we have a problem with Galatians 3.17, which puts the year of the Exodus 430 years after Abraham nearly sacrificed Isaac. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians Chapter 3 and verse 13. The promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, etc., etc. So Paul quotes from Genesis 22, where Abraham nearly sacrificed Isaac on Mount Moriah, and then Paul says that the law came 430 years afterward, and the law came, obviously, in the year of the Exodus, when the 
Israelites left Egypt and went to Mount Sinai and God gave them the Ten Commandments and entered into the law covenant with them that same year. So, again, since the ESV says the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years, it seems to me, theologically, and I'm not trying to make a case based on linguistic evidence or manuscript evidence, it just seems to me, theologically, that the ESV has to have mistranslated this verse. Because the Israelites were not in Egypt yet when Abraham nearly sacrificed Isaac. If, on the other hand, we read Exodus 12.40 as the King James Version translates it, the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. Then the time actually spent in Egypt could have been far less than the 430 years and some of the former sojourning in Canaan before they ever went to Egypt could be included in the 430 years. We still have a complex uh, chronology problem which I won't be able to resolve tonight. I'll just leave it with you. I can probably point you in the direction of some scholarly resources that you could begin to consult if you're interested. But we still have a complex chronology problem since 430 years, even going back to the time where Abraham nearly sacrificed Isaac, um, doesn't get us all the way to the beginning of Abraham's sojournings. So even if it says that the people of Israel's total sojournings were 430 years, we're still a chronology problem. Anyway, I won't try to resolve it. I just want to point that out as we go, that there still is an issue. But it makes more sense, at least, to reckon the 430 years that is being referred to here in Exodus 12 as referring to the near sacrifice of Isaac to the year of the Exodus, as opposed to being, as the ESV has it, the very years that they lived in Egypt. So however we reconcile the details, and scholars are all over the place in terms of how they reconcile the details, Paul in Galatians obviously understands the 430 years referred to here in Exodus 12 as referring to the 430 years between the span of Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac and the year of the Exodus, right? We can at least agree about that. Paul understands the 430 years referred to in Exodus 12 as being 430 years from the near sacrifice of Isaac to the year of the Exodus. Therefore, it seems to me that there are probably just issues in interpreting ancient numbers or manuscript issues or something else that makes the Old Testament record of chronology somewhat confusing. But for our purposes tonight, we are at least on safe ground. Again, I reiterate, taking Paul's infallible interpretation of what span or what what span the 430 years in Exodus 12 is referring to as being the 430 years between the near sacrifice of Isaac and the year of the Exodus. However long 
long the Israelites were in Egypt is immaterial. However long Abraham sojourned in Canaan is immaterial. When it mentions 430 years here in Exodus 12, according to Paul in Galatians 3, that 430 years should refer to the years between the near sacrifice of Isaac and the year of the Exodus. You with me? This is complex, but it's important. Okay, now, listen. In this case, and I'm indebted to the uh, old uh, particular Baptist, Nehemiah Cox, who lived several centuries ago on this point. In this case, what Moses is saying is that it was 430 years, look, what does it say? To the very day. On that very day. It was 430 years to the very day since Abraham's son was spared by the blood of a substitute that God provided. Do you catch the rich symbolism? God taught Abraham that his son could only be saved by the blood of a substitute. Do you remember Isaac's question on the way up? We have the fire, we have the wood, but where is the lamb? And Abraham's answer? God will provide the lamb. God taught the Israelites that their sons could only be saved by the blood of a substitute. 430 years later, to the very day at the Passover. Then, many years later, Jesus was crucified on the very same day as Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac, and on the very same day as the Passover lamb was slain in Egypt. The lesson is the same. And God makes it super clear for us by pointing out, uh, pardon me, by placing all these events on the very same day. There is one lesson that all of this is driving at and pointing to. The children of Israel may only be saved by the blood of a substitute. And John develops this theme in his gospel, and I'm kind of stealing my own thunder here since I'm preaching through John on Sunday mornings, but alas. John develops this theme in his gospel. Listen to John 19, 33 to 36. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Where, I ask you, did the scripture say that not one of his bones will be broken? There are only two possible references. Exodus 12, 46, where God gives instructions about the Passover lamb. It shall be eaten in one house 
You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Or, Numbers 9 and verse 12, where God reviews the instructions that he has already given about the Passover lamb. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. So John, under the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, clearly wants us to see Jesus as the Passover lamb. And John says in John 19 and verse 29, that a jar of full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. The significance of this, you wonder? Listen to the IBP Bible background commentary. Hyssop was not the most natural instrument to use for this purpose. John mentioned hyssop because of its significance in the Passover, fitting the symbolism of John 19, 1-42 as a whole. Remember they were to take hyssop and spread the blood on the doorposts and the lintel of the home. So John picks up on this and points out little details like a hyssop branch. And he wants us to see Jesus as the Passover lamb saying, he didn't break any of his bones, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And of course, let us not forget the transfiguration where Jesus and Elijah and who? Moses speak about the exodus, that's the Greek word that is used, the exodus that Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. You simply can't miss it. God has made it so clear in his word. Jesus is the ram caught in the thicket on Mount Moriah who spared Isaac's life. Jesus is the Passover lamb slain in the place of the firstborn sons in Exodus. And it is by the blood of the same lamb that the new covenant children of Israel, the believing remnant, and the Gentiles who are grafted in by faith. It is by the blood of the lamb that the new covenant children of Israel are spared the death that we would otherwise be liable to. And it is by the blood of the same lamb that we undergo an exodus from slavery to sin. There is rich gospel symbolism in even the timing of these events, that God would work it out that all these events so many years apart happen on the very same day of the calendar year. Now moving on from gospel symbolism to the gospel invitation. Look at chapter 12 and verse 38. Who came out of Egypt? The people of Israel, as we see in verse 37, and a mixed multitude. In other words, Gentiles. And particularly, who might these Gentiles be? 
Egyptians. Egypt was not Toronto or New York with all kinds of ethnicities and nationalities represented this multicultural place. It was basically the Egyptians and the slave class, the Israelites. So what we see here is that there were Egyptians who left their houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and lands who resolved, as Ruth did so many years later, Ruth the Gentile, the Moabite, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. These Gentiles chose, as Moses is said to have done in Hebrews 11, rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. They considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. They took shelter together with the Israelites behind the blood of the Lamb. They took refuge under the wings of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Or at least some of them did. Most likely there were some who were just opportunistic and realized that all the crops were a failure in Egypt and the land was in ruins and figured maybe the grass would be greener on the other side of the fence and whatever. But doubtless, doubtless, among this bunch were some real believers. Just as there were real believers among the mass of the Israelites. Now look at 12.48. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord. Let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come. Then he may come near and keep it. There is provision here for the Gentiles to share in the faith of Israel from the very beginning of Israel's existence as a nation. God has always made a distinction between those who are His people and those who are not His people. But, there, but those who are not His people have always, have always been welcome to become His people. The Gospel invitation goes far and wide from the beginning. As Peter said when Cornelius and his household believed the gospel many, many, many years later in Acts 10, 34 and 35, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Therefore, as Jesus cried out in John chapter 7 and verse 37, if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Or Revelation 22, 17, picking up the same theme. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Your unbelieving family members, friends, neighbors, co-workers, let them come. Invite them to come to Christ Jesus and to share in the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. Fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Let them, like us, be grafted into the true Israel by faith, as Romans 11 talks about. Though we are likewise Gentiles by birth. Let them, like us, throw in their lot with the people of the God of Israel. Whosoever will may come is supposedly a conversation closer, decisively defeating Calvinism once and for all. I don't know how many conversations I've had with non-Calvinists where they stress this point. Whosoever will may come. But listen, whosoever will may come is a point of profound agreement among all Christians, Calvinists and otherwise, whosoever believeth will not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever. So Christians, let our evangelism be fired by this conviction that God is willing and ready to receive any and all who will come. Even former slaveholders, like these Egyptians, who left their old life and threw in their lot with the people of God as they left Egypt. An unbeliever hearing this, mark it well, the only thing keeping you from God is you. But turn from your sin and throw off, throw away, throw aside all of your excuses. Turn from your sin, cast yourself upon the mercy of God in Christ. And he will have you. In fact, if you will come, he will joyfully receive you. Running to the end of the driveway, so to speak. To throw his arms around you. As Luke 15 teaches us. The invitation goes far and wide. It was a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt. Jews and Egyptians alike. And God made provision for Gentiles to be grafted in, to become Israelites, as it were, and share in that Passover meal. And God grafts in by faith, even in this day and age, 
to his people, to the true Israel, all who trust in Christ Jesus. The invitation is to go far and wide. So now we've covered the gospel symbolism latent in this section, and we've covered the gospel invitation implied in this passage. Now let's examine the gospel memorials commanded in this passage. Look at 13.3. Remember. This is the key word to understanding the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is instituted here, as well as the key to understanding the consecration of all of the firstborn males to God. Remember. Look at 13.9 and 13.16, which read very, very similarly. It shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. In other words, these practices of keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread and consecrating all of the firstborn males, these practices are going to remind you the way that writing something on your hand would remind you, or the way that, say, dangling a reminder from the brim or the peak of your ball cap would also remind you. You can't help but see it and notice and remember. Instead of having just one day of unleavened bread every year, there will be seven, a whole week of unleavened bread. And instead of just reminiscing once in a while about how God killed the firstborn of the Egyptians to set the people free, every time a woman or animal gives birth, to a firstborn son, there will be a reminder. The firstborn animals will be sacrificed, the lambs and so forth, except for donkeys, because this was an unclean animal, which you were not to sacrifice to Yahweh. And so a substitute would be sacrificed in place of the firstborn male donkey. And of course, God doesn't want human children sacrificed. And so likewise, there will be a substitute sacrifice for every firstborn male human. But every time there is a firstborn of man or animal, there will be a reminder of the exodus, the great salvation that God worked for the children of Israel. He says this is what it's for. It's going to be like a reminder that you write on your hand or put between your eyes. It's going to be an obvious part of your yearly calendar. It's going to be a conspicuous part of your regular practice. God builds opportunities into the calendar and prescribes practices of his people for them to remember these things. He doesn't want them to forget. Not that they would intellectually forget, but their affections might forget. So he commands them to remember and builds in this reflection into their calendar and into their prescribed practices. And God wants every generation to know about this great salvation that he's worked for his people. So he institutes things that will make the kids ask questions. 
Look at verse 14. When in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? God builds opportunities into the calendar and into the prescribed practices of his people for them to talk with their children about the great salvation that he worked for them in bringing them out of Egypt. God wants his deeds recounted and rehearsed and passed on to the next generation so that we won't forget intellectually or in terms of our affections, so that we won't forget, so that it will be in our minds, and so that our hearts will be hot and warm towards the Lord, and so that the minds and the hearts of our little children will be warm towards the Lord. God wants His deeds recounted and rehearsed and passed on to the next generation. Now, if we were to ask ourselves what the Lamb prefigured, and what the Exodus prefigured. And if we were to answer correctly, that they prefigure the sacrifice of Christ in order that we would be spared God's wrath and set free from our slavery to sin, then what would we say that this feast of unleavened bread, which begins with the Passover meal, prefigures? If you said the Lord's Supper, communion, you would be right. What does Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me. Again, not because we will intellectually forget, but because our affections are prone to forget. God builds into our calendar and into our prescribed practices a memorial of his great salvation. The exodus that Jesus accomplished at Jerusalem. And like these first memorials that we read about in Exodus 12 and 13, the memorial of the Lord's Supper causes kids to ask questions too. Before kids ever ask about what the preacher says, before kids ever ask about the lyrics to the songs that we sing, before anything else, in most cases, the kids ask about the bread and the juice. Dad, what does this mean? When in time your son comes to you and asks, what does this mean? Do you notice? It's the same thing. Because God wants not only for us to remember intellectually, to have it clear in our minds, to have our minds focused on Him, and God wants our affections to be warm towards Him, but not only does He want that, but He wants the minds and the hearts of our children to be turned towards Him. And so He builds things into our calendar and our prescribed practices, which cause the little kids to ask, Why? What does this mean? We have an opportunity at the communion table to remind our own hearts of the saving work of God, prefigured by the Passover lamb. 
and to tell the next generation of the saving work of God. This Lord's table is prefigured by the Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As there was a day, the, in the month of Abib, destined for the slaughter of a substitute in order that Isaac's life would be spared. As there was a day destined in the month of Abib for the slaughter of a substitute in order that the firstborn sons of Israel and Egypt might be spared. And an ensuing exodus for the people of God way back in the book of Exodus, there was a day destined for the slaughter of a lamb. A day in the month of Abib. And an ensuing exodus for the people of God. In the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is what the original lamb and the original exodus prefigured. And there were memorials instituted way back in the book of Exodus, which prefigured a memorial of the events in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. At our stage of redemptive history, what we ought to do is to regularly rehearse and recount not the first Passover, but the last, both for the remembrance of our own hearts and minds and for the sake of the hearts and minds of our little children. We do this every time we gather around the Lord's table. It's been a while because of COVID-19, but we will do it again soon. I look forward to that Sunday when we memorialize once again that day destined for the slaughter of a lamb and the ensuing exodus for the people of God. In the meantime, until we have a chance to celebrate the Lord's table again, let's sing about that day. Number 298, if you're following along in hymns of grace, see the destined day arise.